Welcome to Life Center Church. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about this podcast and our church, visit lifecenternyc.com. I'm going to pray again real quick because we're a house of prayer and that's what we do. So, Father, I just thank you. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're here in this place. And we invite you today, Holy Spirit, come and stir us up. Come and stir things in our heart today. Lord, I pray that you would commission us in all that you have for us in this city. I pray right now for each and every person in this room and on YouTube. God, I pray that you would speak your word. You would, you would commission our hearts. You would align us with you. Right now, Father God, we ask for your assignments to be released in the room. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I'm going to be talking today about being commissioned, and that's why I prayed that. Um, and so for those of you who have been around, it was a few months back, uh, I preached a message about com- being commissioned in Christ. And this is basically a part two of that message. Um, I talked a lot about the life of Apostle Paul and how he was commissioned. And so I'm going to get into that a little bit and do a little recap. But before I do, I want to share a little bit about myself and when I was commissioned. So I was saved when I was 18 years old. I was, it was a summer before college, and it was a radical experience. I was at a summer camp, and the Lord met me, and I, I felt his tangible presence, and I knew Jesus was real. And I knew that, that, that my life would never be the same. And so it was a real moment. It was a transformative moment. I gave my life to him. But how many of you know that even in that moment, even in the realness of that, the next year, my life still didn't look immaculate. <laughs> in fact, I, it's a process of sanctification. And, and for the first year of my Christian walk, I was very much double-minded, if you're going to be honest. So I, would, I, went to, I went to college, and I was, I was all in. Like I was doing, the, you know, going to leadership training, trying to be a part of a high school ministry. It's where I got saved, was in high school, and I had a heart to go and reach high school kids. So I'm doing leadership training by day, and I'm like studying my Bible, doing, doing all this stuff, reading the word, eating it up. But by night, I'm like a different person. I'm still sort of got my foot in that other world that I used to live in before Christ. How many can relate to that? So I'm in this tension moment, and I have this situation that I believe was divinely orchestrated that, uh, that brought me to a place of humility. And so basically, like I said, I'm Bible scholar by day, leader training by day. By night, I'm doing silly things. So one of those silly things I like to do was to pull fire alarms. How many of you know when you're in college, you just do dumb things, all right? So those of you that are in college, I pray that that is not your reality but I'm being transparent about mine. So people pull my fire alarm. I didn't like it, so I go to their place and pull theirs at like 1 o'clock and make them all wake up. Um, so I'm doing this for a bit. Don't recommend it once again. And, um, and I get a call from the local police station, and they say, Sir, uh, we'd like to take you in and talk to you about pulling fire alarms at late in the night. I said, Oh, my gosh. So I, I go in, and these guys are professionals. They were good. You had a, they did the good cop, bad cop thing to me. You ever had that? And one guy's like, we're so glad you're here. We're here to help you. We're going to get this straight. And the other guy's like, you did it. We know. We got the evidence. You're going to get suspended. <laughs> I'm like, oh. so I, I broke like a twig. Like they just literally, 
destroyed me. You know, I'm a freshman, and I just broke and started crying. Oh, I did it. He did it with me, and all these people did it. And I ratted my friends out. Um, so once again, I'm being honest here. Um, but I got ratted out. Anyway, somebody gave them my name, and I'm the only cult on, in the campus of 20,000 people. So they found me in the database, and I was toast. But it was such a humbling process because not only did I have to go through all the emotional trial, but then I got the penalty. I got the punishment, right? And my punishment was I had to go to this building. It was like in the middle of a hill off from the campus. It was like a place that you would like not want to go, right? And there's this creepy old guy with me. And I would go through these printer packages. Like I would like sort printer cartridges and they would like burn things in there. It was a very strange thing. And they made me go and pick up trash every morning in the quad in front of all my friends. So in every morning they come out for class, you know, these are the people I'm in leader training with. Okay. And I've got my little claw, you know, the claw, I got the claw and I'm like picking up all sorts of nonsense, Chick-fil-A wrappers and you name it stuffing them in this bag, and they're like, hey, Colt, how you doing? I said, hey, you know, just out here serving the Lord, doing my job. <laughs> and then they see, like, the, the, the maintenance guy say, hey, come over here, Colt. We got to go to the shed out behind the school. And they're like, something's going on. So it was quite humbling, and, and my double life was being made apparent, right, for all to see. But the beauty of that moment is it, it, awoke, it wakened me up. It, it stirred me on. And maybe you've been in that situation where you recognize, wow, I am different here than I am here. Like I'm one way at church or with these group of friends, but put me with these friends, put me at work or in these situations, and I'm not the same person. It's very convicting, very challenging, very humbling. And so the Lord began to press that on me. And I said, God, like, what am I going to do about this? And the answer the Lord gave me, the thing that he did in my life is he actually doubled down on the things that I, he had told him to begin with. And when I had met the Lord, I knew, I, I, I de started developing a heart for high school kids. And the Lord began to strengthen that heart and strengthen that vision and say, I want you to go to the high schools. I want you to go to the middle schools. And, and as I began to wrap my mind, I had a lot of time going through those printers to think about this. As I began to, to focus in on what God had commissioned me to do, how many of you know my nightlife changed? I didn't have time for fire alarms and silliness. Like, I don't have time for all that. It's not that I hunkered down and said, I'm not going to do this stuff. This is bad. No, I was more preoccupied with what God wanted to do. I was starting to get his heart. I was starting to realize Jesus wants to go to the nations, and the nations are in my backyard. And the nations are the school down the street. And I've got to go because of what he did in me, he wants me to give it away. And it stirred me in such a way that the old stuff just kind of left. And I would propose to you today, there's some of you in this room that he wants to consume you with this commission because there's things that are consuming you that are messing you up, that are, that are making you feel compromised, but commissioning destroys compromise. Commissioning destroys apathy. Like it, it comp, comp, you can't compromise anymore when you realize that Jesus has called you and commissioned you to go. You can't. And I think the beauty of it is you start to get his heart. And that's where, that's where there's real safety and that's where there's real growth, when you start to get his heart. But you only get it when you go. You only get it when you respond to where he's called you to go. But when you do, you get discipled. When you're trying to disciple other people, you get discipled. So I want to relate it back to Apostle Paul. And these are a few points that I had from the last time I spoke. So there's four points that I mentioned about Paul's commissioning. And I'll say them real quick, and then I want to read 
read it from the book of Acts. Paul knew he was sent by Jesus. Paul knew he was sent by Jesus. Paul had Jesus show up to him on a donkey, knock him off his donkey, and speak to him and say, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. Go and follow me. He, he, he wasn't being called by man. It wasn't like a nice ministry call. It was a call from Jesus himself. We have to know, if we're commissioned ones, that we are called by Jesus himself. We have to have that level of conviction. Secondly, Paul knew he was called to reach. So even early on, Ananias got the word of the Lord that Paul is going to the Gentiles and kings and to the Jews. Primarily, he was called to the Gentiles. He knew the people he was called to reach. Who are the people you're called to reach? Do you know? Do you have a little more detail than just people? There might be specific nations. There might be industries. There might be age groups that you were called to. Do you know who you're called to? Three, Paul knew he would suffer. He was told that right at the beginning. You will suffer for my name. That was important for him to endure what he endured. And four, Paul did not despise his past. He's a Jewish man, had rich understanding of the Bible, of the Torah. That understanding would not hinder him. It would help him. Him being a Pharisee was actually in his favor, and God would use his past to thrust him into a whole new world. And his, and his multi-ethnic sort of background in Tarsus was just what God needed to send him to the Gentile nations. So Acts 9, we're going to read from Acts 9, starting at verse 15. Here is all that I told for you in a nutshell. So this is Paul's commissioning, all right? It takes place right after he's been knocked off his donkey. He's been blinded by the light. He's sitting in Damascus trying to figure out what's up and what's down. And this guy Ananias gets called by the Lord to go and tell Paul what's about to happen next. And here's what it says. As a reminder of how Paul, oh wait, verse 15. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. There's the commissioning. Up front, when he got saved, he also got called. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. There's the reminder of what it's going to cost. Verse 17, then Ananias went to the house and he entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell off Saul's eyes. He could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. So he gets called, he gets commissioned, he gets baptized. It's all packaged in the one. But how many of you know many of us in the in in the American church, we get saved, but we don't necessarily get commissioned. I'll say it again. We get saved, but we don't get commissioned. We think that it's, oh, like, now I'm saved. Now I'm in. I'm in with the Lord. I'm going to be in heaven with him. But you don't realize that actually not only are you saved, but you're called to give your life to other people. You're called to go. There's a commissioning that comes with salvation. And so I believe often we get confused and we get disillusioned in our faith or bored, to be honest, because we think it's just about us getting to heaven and being with Jesus. And now that we're there, what are we going to do for the rest of our life, you know? Sing songs and, and, and kind of hang out with, with people and, and, and wait till Jesus comes back. No, like there's a commissioning. There's a calling. And some of us have never heard that and we don't know it. But it's the reality, and Paul lived it. So 
as Bill was mentioning earlier, we got, it's Memorial Day weekend. And for me, like, I was running around the town that I, that I live in, and they had in that town all these banners for men and women who were in the armed services who had, who had died. And it's, it's a beautiful thing just to honor their lives. And so you, I was going running, and they have, you know, this people, uh, this man, and, and he served in World War II. This person served in Vietnam. This person served in what have you. And they all were heroes. They all gave their lives. They gave their lives for this nation. And so it's just amazing to see, like, that form of honor. And I, and I thought to myself, gosh, these people knew when they got into the armed services, they knew what they signed up with. They knew that it would cost them even their very lives, and they were willing to go. That's a beautiful thing. Anybody can appreciate that, and, and we honor that, you know, this weekend. My grandfather, he was, he was sent on the beaches of Normandy. So he fought in World War II, literally stormed the beach. He was the third wave. The first two waves were completely annihilated. His wave, he was shot five, six times and survived. And so I don't have to honor him Memorial Day. I'm glad that I don't, because if I did, I wouldn't be here. So he gave his life or was willing to risk his whole life for the sake of this nation. And it's, it's a beautiful thing. And so I went and I looked and I said, gosh, what do, what do people that are in the armed services, what do they commit? Like, what do they say when they join to acknowledge what they're signing up for? And what I found was they, they swear, and here's what they swear to, they swear to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. They swear to defend this, this nation against all enemies, foreign and domestic. They swear to obey the orders of the President of the United States and the orders of the officers that are appointed over them. And at the very end, it says, so help me God. I find that to be pretty appropriate. Pretty appropriate for you. You're declaring a high level of allegiance, right? I'm willing to give my life for this nation. Help me God to actually do it. Help me God to actually follow through. And so today, as I talk about commissioning, as I talk about laying our lives down, it's only by God's help. It's only by God's grace that we can do this. Don't come away thinking, I got I to gotta buck up. I got to be stronger for Jesus. No, like you need his grace, but the calling is a high calling. Amen. But we need his grace. If the military is called to give that level of allegiance to a kingdom of the earth, to an earthly leader, the president, how much more allegiance are we called to have to Jesus, the king of kings? How much more allegiance are we called to have to his kingdom, which is an everlasting kingdom and reigns over every kingdom? So I believe we think about the commitment of a soldier to a country, but what about the commitment we have to our Lord Jesus? What is that commitment? To me, we make that commitment when we get baptized. And some of you are going to get baptized here coming up, and some of you recently were baptized. When you get baptized, you're actually pledging your full allegiance to Jesus. You're saying, I'm all in for him. I'm an old man. The old is gone. The new has come. I'm a new man. <laughs> the old is gone. The new has come, and I'm fully all in, and my life is now his life. And my old life was buried, was, was dead, and now I'm alive because Jesus is alive, as, as Pastor Bill was talking about this morning. So that is the commitment we give, but we don't necessarily look at it that way and talk about it that way. So I want to read real quick. This is something I found where this is during uh, certain churches, their baptism service, they have the people being baptized say this. And I like this. Maybe we'll in institute this ourselves. So here's what they have them say. And I think it gives the right gravity of the situation when you give your life to Jesus. This says, on the behalf of the whole church, I ask you, do you renounce the spiritual for forces of wickedness and reject the evil powers of this world and repent of your sins? And the person would say, I do. 
Do you accept the freedom and power God gives you to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves? I do. Do you confess Jesus Christ as your Savior, put your whole trust in his grace, and promise to serve him as your Lord in union with the church, which Christ has opened to peoples of all ages, nations, and races? I do. That is a massive statement. But you and I have signed up for that. But do we know what we've signed up for? Do we know what it looks like to be fully devoted to Jesus? Fully sold out, just as he is to us. See, devotion, commitment, those words, they're like bad words in the culture. People don't like those words. To submit, to devote, to commit. We have... You know, this culture, we're, we're, we're really known for, like, our monthly memberships. So just so I can get out real quick. We're known for our nominal friendships. Just a friendship that's, you know, we just talk a little bit, but I can quickly leave. We're known for church hopping. I'll just be a little in the church a bit, but nobody will know me, and then I'll pop out whenever I don't like it. Unfortunately, that is, like, defined our culture right now. And, and so not only that, there's this normalized selfishness that we see in the culture. People go to things for only what they can get out of it. People go to some churches just for what they can get from the church. I praise God, I don't, I don't see that in our church, but that, that, is, that is the culture. People go, they work jobs just so they can make it a stepping stone. But is it really all about you? Is church all about you? Is your job all about you? People start families, or do even, well, people don't start families because it's about you. Like, you, you get what I'm saying? Like, there's this selfish thing that's in the culture, and it's not kingdom. It's not the kingdom of God, and we need to outright discern it and reject it and say, no, like, Jesus gave his life away, so I'm going to give my life away. I'm not a slave to selfish thinking, selfish mentalities. I'm not going to entertain it. I'm going to lay my life down as a servant just as Jesus did. So that mentality, it's, it's so anti the culture, but we have to be people that are kingdom culture. We, we, ha- we, we have to walk and discern that that is not the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14, it says, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. No longer live for themselves. We're delivered from selfishness. Thank you, Jesus. Because that, it rots the very soul. Do you know that? Selfishness will rot your soul. It messes with you. And as a Christian, you're actually called to lay your life down. You're called to to surrender everything. So when you act selfish, things inside of you get frustrated and annoyed because you were made to be all in for him. You were made to surrender fully. And but people that aren't Christians, they don't get that necessarily. Because guess what? They don't have the Holy Spirit in them telling them to lay their life down. But you and I, we have that. And, and we think sometimes, oh, you know, the devil's after me. The enemy's trying to attack me. Well, for me, often it's, I'm just not willing to lay my life down. I'm frustrated because I'm not willing to submit to what Jesus is asking me to do. It's not the enemy coming after me. It's me not coming after Jesus. So I want to give a little, a little, like, sort of picture of what it looks like to really be commissioned and I believe that um, I believe the book of Thessalonians provides that. Um, and so this is Paul's missionary journey to Thessalonica. 
and to, and to the specific city he goes, and I'll, I'll explain why he goes there. Um, but if you read First and Second Thessalonians, this is his letter to that city, and that city was a key, a, a key port city for all of Macedonia. And so it's a strategic city that Paul goes to. When he's writing the letter, this is a second missionary journey, and he goes there with Timothy, with Silas. So you hear these names as we read through it. Um, but this, this church is only about a year old, um, the church that he's writing to. It's actually, 1 Thessalonians is, one of the, is the oldest epistle in the Bible. So this is pretty early on uh, in the start of the church. Now, I want to, if we're going to read um, about the Thessalonians, we need to read a little of the historical context. So if you go to the book of Acts, we're going to go to Acts verse 17. And I encourage everyone, when you're reading the epistles, which are Paul's letters to various churches, to find what's going on in the historical narrative. And you can do that in Acts. So go in Acts, see, oh, what, who is Paul speaking to and what's going on? Like, so then you know, oh, this is what's going on in Thessalonica. This is what the people are dealing with. And this is how the church started. All of that is such helpful context. And the word will become richer to you because you'll understand, oh, this is a dialogue between Paul and a people group. It's not just some theology to ascertain. It's an actual dialogue between Paul and the church. And when you get the, the context, it gives, it's so much richer and so much more fulfilling. So that's why I'm going to read this to start off. How did this church start? Um, Acts 17, starting at verse 1. Then Paul and his companions had passed through Amphilios and Ampolina. They came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Stop there. Paul went to a synagogue in this city and reasoned with them from the scriptures. That is not an easy thing to do. That man was called. That man was driven. Can you imagine going into New York City, one of the synagogues here, and saying, I'm going to come and I'm going to reason with you all and bring a different perspective on the scriptures. Not an easy task. But he was commissioned. He was called. So he went. And here's what happened. He was explaining. What was he doing in there? Explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Paul, you're, you're preaching that in the synagogue? Yeah, I'm commissioned. I'm called. I know I'm supposed to be at this city. I know God's going to touch these people. I'm going. Some of the Jews, this next verse, were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. Glory. You realize how amazing that is? He just preached the word in a synagogue and convinced people that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the answer to all the scriptures that they've been reading there. And it says some Jews came along with him, a lot of God-fearing Greeks, and he even got the prominent women. Come on, look out. There's going to be a prayer movement. In, and there was actually, maybe the prominent women. I should do a whole study on that. Because this is like the most successful church, by the way. Like this is the one, he... he, he Paul comes after the Galatians. He comes after the Corinthians. But the church in Thessalonica, he's like, you guys are killing it. You guys are being, what's being done in you is being made known through the entire region. The prominent women. Um, verse, <laughs> verse five. Now here's, there was another group of people there that had a different opinion about what Paul was saying. But other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace and I want to go to the King James Version here. Here's what it says about these bad characters from King James. Took, 
they took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. That's a great description. <laughs> lewd fellows, the baser sort. Just to let you know, that was like me in college, the lewd fellow of a baser sort. Um, so, and they formed a mob, and they started a riot in the city. So these guys were they, were, they were very much against what was being preached. They rushed to Jason's house. Now, poor Jason, he's just a new believer who's housing Paul and Silas. And they're like, oh, they're in your house. We're going to your house, buddy. And they brought them out to the crowd, Paul and Silas. And when they did not find them, or the, they tried to bring them out, they didn't find them. So they dragged Jason out and some other believers before the city officials shouting, these men have caused trouble all over the world and they have come here now. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil and they made Jason and the others postpone and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. They had to sneak out of the city. It's that bad. So there's great fruit. There's people getting saved. There's great opposition. But Jesus told Paul, you must suffer for me. So because he knew that from Jesus himself, I, he did not relent. He's not like, oh, well, I guess this wasn't the Lord. There's too much, there's too much coming against us. He knew that this was the Lord and he was going to face suffering and persecution along the way. And I love that it says their, their issue with him was he was declaring a different king. He was declaring Jesus a king higher than Caesar. What does that tell you about what he was preaching? When you preach Jesus to people, do, do they respond that way? Do they say, oh, you're talking about a king bigger than the president. You're talking about a king bigger than the nation. This gives you context for maybe what he was saying, the gospel he was preaching. And there was a stigma to it. There was an extremely terrible stigma to preaching the gospel. I pray that God would give us a vision like Paul had for that city, for Thessalonica, that he would give us that vision for this city. That he would give us vision that we could preach things that are truth about who Jesus is, even with the stigma, even when people hate us for it, but that we could preach it in love with a conviction, with a commission to go and share Christ. That's what it's going to take. And there's some of you in this room, I'm telling you, I feel like the Lord gave me this too. There's some, there's some Jasons in this room. You're new believers, you're new to all this, but you're going to be housing people and you're going to be a part of what God wants to do in this city and you're going to get thrown in the deep end. <laughs> like, all of a sudden, your reputation is being tarnished because of Jesus, but you're in the middle of a great move of God. You're in the middle of a great harvest of souls. So Jason lost his whole reputation, but he gained his name in this Bible, by the way. Think of all the people named Jason, like, around you. I don't know if Jason would be such a popular name if this Jason doesn't, so that's great. But even more, he gained eternal rewards because you have souls here in Thessalonica and beyond that are coming to the Lord because Jason took a risk and housed these guys that turned over the world and he brought them right into this town. And God was moving and people got touched. You know, I'm so thankful for people who are willing to go no matter the cost. And I'm thankful because if it wasn't for certain people in my life, I wouldn't be standing here before you. If it wasn't for people that had a vision for my high school, that had a vision 
that Jesus would touch and reach messed up kids like myself. And, and, and not only did they have a vision for it, they actually went. They prayed and they showed up at my high school steps. They go to my, my games. They go to my friend's house. They go to wherever I hang out. They would haunt me. And I'd say, it's so weird that these 20-some-year-old people are hanging out with a 17-year-old. What is their problem? It's because they love me because they were loved by Jesus. And they were ready to give it away, to even give their lives away. And they did, and it forever changed my life. And, and so this commissioning, it has powerful consequences um, when we align with it. And it changed my life, and some of you probably have your own stories. So I want to get into three points on commissioning. And I'm going to go into these points a little bit more than I did on the first service. So three points on commissioning. And my, my goal, my desire for today is for each and every person here, some of you, you have a very clear call, like you know who you're commissioned to reach. You know it. And I pray for you that you be strengthened in this time, that you be built up and encouraged. Say, I'm not going to quit. I'm going to be like Paul. I'm going to go in. I'm going to preach. I'm going to love no matter what the cost. So I pray that you be strengthened for that group. Some of you never were commissioned to begin with, and you're not even sure what God's called you to, who he's called you to, and that's okay. But I'm praying today that you would have that type of vision, that type of fervor, that type, God's passion for those people, his heart because you're going to meet Jesus in such a more powerful way when you give his love to other people. And so I pray that for you as well. So two groups, and that's, that's what I'm going for today. So three points on commissioning. Number one, you are commissioned to reach specific people, specific people. What was Paul doing in Thessalonica? What was he doing there? He was there because he got a vision. He had a vision of a man in Macedonia crying out to him, saying, come, Come to our people. Come to this place. He was trying to go to Asia. And it says in there, the spirit of Jesus, I don't even understand this theologically, told him not to go. And he has a vision. He has a dream. It was a vision, not a dream. Um, and in that vision, he sees somebody in Macedonia crying out. And so he goes to Philippi, which they got tossed out of there. They were in prison. We, some of you know that story. And then on then his next round, he goes to Thessalonica. So that's why he's even there, is because of vision that God given him. I believe some of you here, you have that vision, and I want to remind you of that vision this morning. I want to remind you of who God's called you to and why you're in this city. Uh, years ago, I was sitting in my house late at night, and I had like a moment kind of like this, just in a me sort of experience. The Lord, I, I saw this woman praying for these projects near my house, and it was the creepiest thing. I literally saw her and heard her praying for this project, and the Lord was like, go, partner with that. And so this place is out of my way, but I would go and walk around that project and pray like every week or so. And to be honest, I never saw any fruit from it. No idea. But I know that the Lord gave me that vision. And so I believe there's some of you here that God's given you that vision, and he wants, to, he wants you to stay with it. You've been called to reach a certain people. There are people that you in this room can reach that nobody else can reach. God's positioned you. He's given you a testimony to reach them. And so we don't want to forget, he's so specific. God is so, he's a master designer. Um, so point number one, you're commissioned to reach specific people. Point number two, you are commissioned to turn people from wickedness and wrath. You are commissioned to turn people from wickedness and wrath. Thessalonians, First uh, Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 through 10. Here's what it says. 
And so you became a model. This is Paul talking to the, to the church. To all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. I told you, these people were knocking it out. There's a prominent women. They were knocking it out of the park. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. And they tell us how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. God's gonna have you share Jesus with people who are consumed with wickedness and idols. That's what was going on on these people. But can we see his heart? Can we prophetically see what God wants to do so that we declare the word to the people that we don't think are gonna get it? There's some people in your life that you're like, they're not gonna get it. They might be the very ones God calls you to. And if you have a vision, if you have a commissioning, you will push through your mental sort of fog and you will preach Jesus to them in love. And they may be the next Paul. They may be the church of Thessalonica. They may be the ones that take things way beyond what you could have possibly taken the gospel to. So that vision and that commissioning is so critical. It allows us to push past our mental fog. So number one, you are commissioned to reach a specific people. Number two, wait, that was number, yes, that was number one. Number two, you are commissioned to turn people from wickedness and wrath. And number three, you are commissioned to lose your life. You are commissioned to lose your life. You are commissioned to lose your life. You're commissioned to lose your life. This is no little thing. John chapter 12, verse 24, verse 23. But Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come that the son of man should be glorified. Most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. This is the call. It's bigger than any military service you'll ever do. The cost is massive. But the benefits are the best. First Thessalonians chapter two, starting in verse five. This is Paul writing. You know, we never use flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or for anyone else. Even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mom cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Gospel is not just a nice theological preaching. It's a life shared with a person. So when we say we're commissioned to go to people, we're not just talking about go yell at some people on Wall Street. 
You could do that. It's all right, as long as it's in love. But we're talking about a life submitted to serve Jesus and to love. And, the, and so what Paul describes here, the best way that he can describe the love he has for them, the gentleness that he has for them, is a nursing mom. Of any analogy he could have chosen, that's the one that he chose. To describe his gender, gentleness and tender care. What a massive calling that it is to share the gospel with somebody. To tenderly love them like a mother tenderly loves and nurses her child. I'm telling you, some of the street, preacher, street preachers could, could definitely use that verse. When you're sharing Jesus with somebody, do they feel the gentleness as a mother nursing their child? You know, he says we shared not only the gospel, but our very lives. Paul showed up. He paid a lot. I mean, he got kicked out of the city. But then he invested over time in these people. He says he prayed for them without ceasing. He prayed for them daily. God, would you use your church in Thessalonica? Would you stir them up? Would you cover them? And he sent people to them. He sent, I don't know, what, I don't, I don't know half of the story, but he laid down his life that they may thrive in the Lord. It's a beautiful, powerful picture. You know, when I was working with high school kids, we would, um, they would we'd do this thing called contact work. And they would say, if you want to preach to somebody, you want to share Jesus with them, you need to spend X amount of time with them. And so you would log hours and hours and hours. And they say, you need to win the right to be heard in their life. And so I think there's lots of form of ministry. Certainly, if we're doing harvest outreach, right, you're not going to be able to necessarily win the right to be heard. But primarily, a relational ministry, and a lot of you have a lot of amazing relationships in the city, is the best conduit to share Jesus with people. It's not getting people saved in stadiums. It's getting them saved on one-on-one conversations. That's where the power is. I mean, how many of you got saved in a stadium? Maybe some of you did, but most of you got saved on one-on-one conversations. So let's do it both. Let's do the stadiums. Let's do that. But don't forget the one-on-one. Don't forget that's where the majority of this, these things are happening. So contact work, man, that was like, it's a good reminder. We got to log hours with people if we're going to share the gospel. Because it's, it's part of you standing in front of them. It's not just the words you say. It's the life you live that communicates the love of Jesus. I'm going to read the next section down here. 1 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 12. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and our hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel to you. You are a witness, and so is God, of how holy and righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you, catch this, as a father deals with his own children. Mothers, that's his first analogy. Fathers is his second analogy encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you in his kingdom and glory. So when you bring the gospel, you come with the gentleness of a nursing mom and with the encouragement of a father who is comforting and urging his children to live a life worthy of the gospel. That's powerful. Parental gospel ministry here. The mother and the father. These are the examples. Family is the context for the gospel going forth. It comes in a family. We're, here, we, family is so key to us. We, our desire is that this house would be a family 
because God's building a family, not building a corporation, not building some like, you know, some sort of like evangelistic sort of, you know, machine. It's a family. And that's the best way the gospel's packaged. God, would you make us more like that? Would you make us more tender like a, and gentle like a nursing mom and more comforting and encouraging like a father? Urging people into the fullness of their call. You know, I'm trying to build this in my family, instill this in my kids, um, just this idea of like being family and, and being with one another no matter what and loving each other through and through. And I was talking to my kids, it was yesterday, and Fern's like, my, do- my oldest daughter, she's seven. She's like, Daddy, I want to live with you forever. <laughs> I was like, oh, man. Her name means sincere love, and she, she is it. I was like, I don't know if you're going to want to do that when, you know, you're married. She's like, yeah, I do. I want to live with you forever. And I, I took the advantage. I said, are you going to take care of me when I'm old? <laughs> she said, oh, yeah, I will. I definitely will. And, uh, little, and Lilu, my middle one, she's five. She heard the conversation, and she's like, I'm not doing it. Nope. Not doing it. I was like, come on. I got one out of three. Little Flowey didn't have a vote yet. But, um, but yeah, I was like, Fern, she gets it. Lilu, we're going to keep working on it. She's a strong warrior, though, so she's got other traits. But she's not taking care of me when I'm, when I'm old. But I want to see... I wanna see re- we, we talk about, we pray about it here so much. We want to see revival. We want to see, we want to see a move of God that is unprecedented and an outpouring of his spirit. We want to see, we want to disciple the nations. If you want to see that, you got to know how to be a mom and a dad. You have to understand how to be a spiritual mom and a spiritual dad. Because when we're praying that, we're like, yeah, do it. God's like, do I have spiritual mom and dads that will receive this harvest, that will receive this revival? Like, that's what I hear. Are we ready to receive a harvest that we're praying for? And if we learn how to be tender like moms and encouraging and like, like fathers, we will be ready. We'll get to answer the prayer that we pray. Worship team, could you guys come up for me, please? And you think about what cost a parent would pay. What cost would a parent pay? I pay any cost for my kids. I don't care what I have to do. I'll tear through any wall. You know, family is, I believe, really important in this hour. And if even you look at the tragedy this past week in Uvalde, Texas, I mean, it's tough not to look, right? It's intense. It's disturbing. But you look, you look at that whole situation, and people are going to have whatever opinions they're going to have about it, and people are going to be mad, and yeah, there's there's validity in, in some of the anger. Um, but if you look at the heart of the problem, this young man who did this, he needed the people who reach me to reach him. Let's stop this whole thing. If those college students who came after me would have reached this kid, you got a totally different situation.
God, would you restore the families in this nation? God, would you reach the troubled ones? God, would you send us to the places, to the schools, to the parents, to these broken homes? Could everybody stand for me, please? Father, we just pray right now for this generation, these little ones, God, these children in our nation, Lord. We pray, Father, that you would touch their hearts. Send revival to the schools. Send revival to the homes. God, we pray that you would touch hearts. But we pray that you would commission Mission those, those called ones into these places. Send them forth. Thrust them into the schools. Thrust them in. You know, I, um, sometimes when you go on your, like, commute or you're walking around the city, can see middle school, high school kids, and they get in your way, and they're kind of, sometimes they're really annoying, you know, let's just be honest, they can be, and um, I feel like the Lord really stirring us up, saying, would you, would you go to these, these little ones, would you put your annoyances aside, your opinions aside, he's commissioning many of you today to go to this age group. Go to the high schools. Go to the middle schools. Even this Jackson, Mississippi thing, I believe it's training. I believe it's it's training for what God wants to do in this city. But I'm telling you, there's specific commissioning happening today, but this one I want to highlight particularly. Those that are called to the middle schools, to the high schools, to the universities, to the young people in this city. We say, God, would you, would you send us, no matter the cost, no matter the annoyances? And I feel too. I pray today, God would just even give you, would give you vision for the schools near your house, for the kids near your house, for the kids on your commute, the kids that annoy you, or the kids that you just don't even think about much. But they, they would start. God would highlight to you that school. You would adopt that school. You would adopt those children that you see on the street, and you'd pray for them. Maybe you even go to their school. Maybe just pray into it. But we just, God, that we could adopt, even in prayer, these schools in our city, these children in our city, and and love them as our own. Love them with the gentleness of a mother and love them with the encouragement and urging of a father. So, God, we pray right now for our city and the children in this city. We pray that their hearts would be tender. We pray that their parents would have wisdom. We pray that they would get a vision for their life, that they would know their calling, they would know their purpose in you.
read this real quick. Um, God is going to call some of you today to things you don't want to do. All right. So at the burn a few weeks or a week ago, whenever it was, the Lord gave me a calling and I did not want it. Mariah's calling out from the stage like God's passing on assignments and I'm like oh my gosh I know it it's like God I don't want it I don't want this one give it somebody else I'm serious and the Lord was like no it's my joy that's going to be on you it's my joy that's going to go with you when you lose your life you gain it and there is joy in it there's joy in laying your life down. You want your best life now? Lay your life down. That's your best life now. And there's joy in it. I want to read this, 1 Thessalonians, and we're going to close. 1 Thessalonians 2, 19. This is what Paul said about the church in Thessalonica. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we glory in the presence of the Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. God, would you send us to the hardest places, to the most challenging people who we don't even like, but that there would be a joy in our heart because you sent us. That there would be a joy that we would find satisfaction in life and giving our life away. God, I pray that joy would permeate us. Even right now, Lord, give us joy and grace for the calling. Even as you're dishing out commissionings and callings, Lord, that there would be a joy to carry us on. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can also follow us on Instagram at LifeCenterNYC or YouTube at LifeCenterChurchNYC.